0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Hello there. How's your Wednesday? Glad you're here this afternoon. On the show today... A heated debate about the state's proposed new marine parks in state parliament yesterday afternoon. We'll get into that shortly here on the Country Hour. And also a little later in the hour today, after news headlines at half past 12, are carbon offset schemes in Australia working or is it simply shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic? Is there a better way to encourage landowners to prioritise and store carbon
2: well-managed grazing systems would have maxed out on soil carbon already the incentive is to put in a rotary hoe plough it up burn off all the carbon you've got so that you've got low carbon and then engage in a carbon scheme to rebuild it Um, instead of saying well if you've got 5% soil carbon, let's celebrate that and say you've got a wonderful outcome.
1: In the lead-up to the Global Climate Conference in Dubai this week, we've been taking a look at the impact of climate change on agriculture and food production and how farmers can help reduce carbon emissions. So we're going to continue that conversation a little later this hour. Stick around for that. Six past 12 here on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Well, as you heard yesterday, representatives from a group of seven WA Wheatbelt shires flew to Canberra yesterday, keen to discuss the future of the live sheep trade with Agriculture Minister Murray Watt. Apparently, he wasn't so keen and there was no meeting. Members of New Rock, the North East Wheatbelt Regional Organisation of Councils, were in Parliament House to deliver a new report and it shows that the end of the live sheep trade by sea will affect these wheatbelt shires to the tune of $128 million over about 20 years. Quinton Davies is on the trip. He's a farmer at York Rakhine, 215 kilometres northeast of Perth and a former shire president of Wac- Wacatcham. Quinton, how was the Parliament House experience?
3: Uh, yeah, look, it's a pretty special building, Parliament House. Uh, very busy, obviously, over here in the little bubble of Canberra. Uh, look, now we, we come over with a purpose, uh, Belinda, to um, deliver our report. Um, I think it's been done over in WA today, and uh, we got a pretty good hearing from most of the senators and the pollies that we got to see. Um, a little bit disappointing, with, and we didn't expect anything else from the from the Labor side of it. We we really battled to get in to see Minister Watt. I think the only reason we did was because there was a bit of uh, publicity in the papers over here, and I think they picked up on it, and we got to see uh, some of his staff very late last night. So he has got the report. Um, We didn't see him in person, but at least they've got the report.
1: What sort of message do you get from that then? You didn't get an actual meeting with the Agriculture Minister, which is what you were hoping for. What do you conclude from that about where his mind is about the, the future of the trade?
3: Uh, look, he's he's done this all the way through, Belinda. We've been really respectful in the way that we've tried to deal with it. We've asked for several meetings. We've been referred back to the independent panel, which we did as a group at New Rock. He's got that report, obviously, the independent report. We requested a meeting on his terms, either over home or we'd fly over before we come here. That didn't happen. And then uh, Caroline was busily trying to organise um, meetings here to catch up with him when we flew in. And once again, we it fell on deaf ears, so... We appreciate he's very busy, but um, we believe that the, the tack that we've taken has been the best one, and we certainly come at it from a completely different angle, and we really wanted to get our story across to him about how it's going to affect our communities.
1: What difference does this report make, do you think? Because there have been so many done in, you know, once this policy was announced, and we've heard from the different industry groups, different sectors, and now you've added to the pile of that information. Does it really make any difference?
3: Uh, look, we, we hope so. Uh, we've certainly gone, a, gone a, about it. So we put some money up with a group of shires in Europe, the seven of them. Um, got an independent analysis done on the actual impact, the economic impact. And we're talking 130 odd million over the 15-odd years. Um, you know, that's household expenditure. So we, we've stayed away from the welfare side of it. There's plenty of groups that have uh, certainly, you know, got all the data to prove to them that that's all above board. We're purely going about the effect it's going to have on our communities and we're only seven Belinda you multiply it right through the state and it's enormous so we've spent as I said to them yesterday there's plenty of people like me I spent 20 years in local government just got out of it my father 27 and there's plenty of people who spent a lifetime in local government and one of the main aims when you're in local government is to keep your little community sustainable try and halt the population decrease and with a swipe of a pen with this industry we believe that it's going to have a major effect on an enormous amount of industries across a whole regional WA and that's uh, something that we wanted to absolutely get across to them. It's not just you know the farmers out there which is massive but it's the communities as well are going to suffer and they've pumped an enormous amount of money federal money in the last couple of years into these communities. They won't have enough money to pay compensation for when this goes and we um, we really, really wanted to get that message across to them that it's um it's hard work out here and it has been for a number of years and this is going to have a catastrophic effect.
1: Gwyneth, what's happening on the ground, you know, in the, in farm circles there, at, at your place even? What sort of decisions are being made with this policy just looming in the background?
3: Uh, yeah, look, it certain, certainly has taken effect. I mean, that's the other thing we need to get across to these guys. Farmers aren't dumb, Linda. They uh, make decisions two and three years out. Um, they're certainly hunting around looking for um, markets now for their sheep. I know that the, um, the prices are very, very low now compared to what they were, you know, 12, 18 months ago. And and um, you know, we'll take we'll take the hit. But uh, if if the mark, one market goes out, then um, they reassess. And as uh, you know, we're probably not too bad in our area where we can buy a bit more petrol or a bit more diesel and put a bit more crop in, but there's an enormous amount of cockies out there that rely heavily on their stock, and, and it's a big part of the rotation in a lot of areas, so there's a lot of angst out there, not a, not enough information is coming back, and now that he's held on to this report, and um, hopefully he does release it like he says he does, and um, we'll just see whether we can um, get what we want, which is a reversal of the decision and hopefully we can Get that message across to them.
1: What did, what did you hear last night? Then, when you caught up with uh, members of the agriculture minister's team, did you get a sense that that report is going to be released at some point?
3: Uh not, not at all. Not at all. They were very coy with the, the uh, conversation we had with them, and say it's, a, it's um, very political driven, and that's the message we got from all the parties that we spoke to, from both you know the independents, the Greens, and both sides, the Labor and the and the Liberals. So. It's a political decision that they'll make. They, they won't. They won't release it until they've got a roadmap, Linda. And um, that decision, we don't know what it's going to be.
1: Yeah, and no time frame, like you know when it's going to be released or a plan for the phase I'm out. I'm not
3: a. I'm not a big gambling man, uh, Linda. But I'd reckon sometime about a, a week before Christmas, if it does <laughs> come out this year, just just when you get your Christmas ham organised, so it takes the heat off everyone. Um, and whether they release the whole report or not, that'll be, that'll be yet to be seen.
1: So, you know, with that in mind then, is your best bet a change of government? If the phase-out is sort of a seven to ten-year period, is that what you're hoping for? Is, is that the only Look hope? Up,
3: I mean, I, I hope that the, uh, that the parties, the minor parties and the Labor Party actually take our message and put it in a, in a broad regional WA aspect and see the effect it's going to have on the entire state and the regional communities. And if our report's correct, which we paid to get it done, it's completely independent, be handed out at uh, WA Parliament today, so it will be there for everyone to see. And the numbers are there. The numbers are there, Glenda, for everyone to see what the effect will have. And if the politicians take that on board, they'll be making that decision, knowing very well that there's quite a few communities around WA especially, that are going to really, really struggle,
1: but the numbers are there. As you're saying, it's in your report, it's in other reports, but you didn't even get a meeting with the minister. So, do you think this industry has a future?
3: It, it absolutely has got a future, and that's proven with all the all the studies that have been done. Um, if these guys knock it on the head, then in the short term, it certainly hasn't, because uh, we'll have to go somewhere else. It's um, there, there's been. Rumours over here. Look, the Eastern State boys are starting to realise now, since we've been here the couple of days, that the you know it's not just WA that's going to be affected here. Because if we haven't got the sheep numbers there, they're not going to have sheep numbers to restock like they did a couple of years ago. New Zealand's had a change of government, and the word is that they you know they're, they're thinking of reinstatement. So we've got the markets there. We just need to convince these guys and the minor parties that um that's the way we want to go. And and um it's, look, it's not good. We've been we've been trying their hardest in every direction and there's been a lot of agencies and a lot of departments doing it and it's not just not just New Rock that's out there. As you said, there's an enormous amount of people been trying to work towards this decision being overturned and we can only keep trying.
1: Good to talk to you, Quentin. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks a lot, Luna. See you back on.
1: Quentin Davies at the airport. A farmer from York Rakhine and former Shire President at Walcatcham, visiting Canberra to try and convince the MPs that the live sheep trade by sea is worth keeping. Uh, what do you make of that? Not getting a meeting with the Minister, travelling over there, trying to give him a report in person... Apparently to did get the report, but not in person. 0448 Text through. Let me know what you're thinking. This from Bryce. This so-called Ag Minister Murray Watt is an absolute disgrace. He can't even front up and hear what we as farmers have to say. He needs to go, says Bryce. Tony in Albany. This is a Cabinet decision, not a Murray Watt call. They were destined to fail. You were right yesterday, Belinda. Only way is change of government. And this from Angus. Uh, from Cunderdon, we trade up to 10,000 weather lambs over summer, one of the bigger sheep farmers in the Shire, and these low prices are killing us. Praying live export starts up again. The text is 0448 It'd be great to hear from you this afternoon, 16 past 12.
4: This is The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio, WA.
1: Well, the WA Premier made an official apology in Parliament on behalf of the state to Aboriginal people who worked for little or no pay. The apology has come in the wake of an agreement to settle a class action launched by Mervyn Street brought on behalf of Aboriginal people who were subject to discriminatory legislation and practices and stolen wages. WA Premier Roger Cook told Parliament that legislation in effect from 1936 to 1972 was supposed to protect Aboriginal people, but instead resulted in hardship and exploitation.
5: Madam Speaker, I acknowledge here in the Speaker's Gallery today Mr Mervyn Street and Mr Peter Salmon and his brother Alan. And can I take the opportunity to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have joined us in the Gallery today? Today's apology follows the settlement of a class action led by Mr Mervyn Street on behalf of Aboriginal people across Western Australia. The class action started in 2020 and sought justice for people who, over a long period of time, were subject to discriminatory legislation. This legislation was supposed to protect Aboriginal people but instead resulted in hardship and exploitation. The controls imposed on Aboriginal people impacted on where they were allowed to work, travel and live. It also impacted on how much money they were paid, how they were paid and how they received their wages and entitlements. Legislation of this kind particularly in the earlier period of WA's colonial history, resulted in Aboriginal people working long hours without receiving any pay or an appropriate amount of pay. Instead, they were often paid in rations such as flour, sugar, tea and tobacco. The book down system, where, where people bought necessities on credit at the station store, also meant some people never saw the money they were meant to be paid. In 2006, the Commonwealth Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs called on governments across Australia to pay adequate compensation for the hardships and injustices in this stolen wages period in WA, the 2008 Stolen Wages Task Force report looked in detail at the laws and policies that were established to control the welfare and wellbeing of Aboriginal people. It is clear it has taken too long to fully address the implications of that report. I also acknowledge the the, the 2012 reparations scheme was inadequate and excluded many workers who were impacted by these laws. I want to say to all Aboriginal workers that today the Government of WA recognizes that those laws and policies were wrong, and we acknowledge and apologize for the fact that those laws and policies caused great harm and disadvantage and a policy, an apology does not change what happened; it cannot, but it recognizes the importance an apology has as recognition as a move towards reconciliation and a step in a healing process. In bringing a close to this shameful part of Western Australia's history, on behalf of the State of Western Australia, I apologise to the Aboriginal men, women and children who worked in Western Australia between 1936 and 1972, often for decades, for no pay or not enough pay. We acknowledge that many of these people have not lived to see this day. For their family members who remain, we are sorry for the hurt and loss that your loved ones suffered. Their strong shoulders carried the weight of their families and communities. Their strong hands built up this state's economy. Their strong minds and spirits pursued justice in the decades that followed, leading to this moment and the recognition they rightly deserve. To you all, we say sorry.
1: Premier Roger Cook speaking in WA Parliament, apologising to the Aboriginal people subject to legislation that allowed their wages to be withheld. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And it was a busy day in Parliament yesterday. There was also a heated debate about the state's proposed new marine parks in Parliament. A matter of public interest was moved by the Deputy Leader of the Opposition to condemn the short-sighted and reckless approach to the formation of marine parks through poor planning and lack of consultation attacking our sustainable fishing industry. Five members stood in support of the motion, which was ultimately defeated 5-44. to 44. Member for Rowe Peter Rundle also raised concerns about the Pew Charitable Trust's role in developing the state's marine parks.
6: My question is to the Minister for Environment. Minister, I refer to the South Coast Marine Park, which is not only dangerously lacking in local consultation, but is instead relying upon the advice of US-based lobby group Pew Charitable Trust, as opposed to science-based information.
7: (laughs) Noting... Order, please.
6: Noting the Trust purports to speak on behalf of 27 environmental lobby groups. I ask, one, did they design the map for the park or was it determined through the community consultation? And two, have you presented the advice or plans from Pew Charitable Trust to your counterpart in this project, the Minister for Fisheries?
8: Good question. Minister. Thank you, Thank you Speaker. Uh, look, I know the member for row is a lot of things. I didn't know he was a comedian as well. Because, seriously, that question is a load, and I've used the phrase before, it's pure unadulterated malarkey. And I'm about to tell you why. I'm about to tell you why. There has not been a process, and look remember, you, you, you're nodding away which is great um, because this is good information. Um, <laughs> Today they tried to rev you up they gave you some angry pills and wheeled you in, but as you 're still grinning which I love I love that I love that about you but remember member what i 'm doing is delivering a wonderful outcome for you in your community now there has never been there has never been a consultation process more exhaustive than this more inclusive more Uh, involving local community groups from right across the the landscape down there. Now, we have six Community Reference Committee meetings over a a period of 18 months. Uh, We have had uh, consultation. Every, Every licensed fisher was contacted. And asked to give their view. Um, we've got ten different sectoral advisory groups representing recreational fishers, commercial fishers, conservation interests, uh, community interests. The extent of consultation continues to this day. Now you know you're getting up, uh, uh, making assertions about the process. It's not over yet. You haven't seen the the information going out to the public. That we will invite public comment, uh, public comment on that and, and indeed uh, people that have already contributed to the process will get a second go and they'll be able to make their views known. Now just, just, I'll just follow up on this issue about Pew. You seem to have an issue about an organisation that has its origin somewhere else. As if it's some dark, mysterious, uh, evil empire or organisation undermining our very way of life. Now, Board member, please. member, 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 this is good stuff, you should wait and hear it. Uh, <laughs> member, I wonder what you think of the Salvation Army. Uh, I wonder what you think of the Red Cross. I, I wonder what you think. I wonder what you think of the RSPCA. Are you ever going to put any trust in these organisations who have their origin overseas? <laughs> they must be evil, member. They must be be uh, un-Australian. Now, now, Pew is an organisation that has its origin, its genesis, overseas. It has Australian members, Australian management making Australian decisions, consulting with the community in the same way that we have an RSPCA, a Red Cross, um, you know, all sorts of organisations that might have had their origin overseas that have a valuable contribution to make in Western Australia. Minister, can I take it
6: from those comments that you are very comfortable that the US based Pew Charitable Trust is leading this ahead of local community consultation. The
7: Minister.
8: What what you're saying is a complete and utter fallacy. It is not leading anything. It's part of a process. Just like wreck fishers, just like commercial fishers, it has no more or less say than anyone else with a seat at the table, Member. Look, your opportunity here is to get on the right side of history and support this. Not undermine it. Not undermine it and cause not cause angst not cause angst certainty to good people out there in the community who earn their living from working in the sea. You should be thinking about them because you, with this Nazis argument and this these falsehoods which you bring in here almost daily are causing unnecessary anxiety. This is a good process, it's a proper process and we'll get a good outcome.
5: Yeah.
1: Environment Minister Rhys Whitby answering questions from the member for Roe, Peter Rundle. Well fisheries Minister Don Punch was also pointing the finger at the opposition for creating unnecessary anxiety about the development of these marine parks.
4: All I have heard from the opposition has been fear-mongering, fear-mongering designed to cause anxiety and upset, and at the end of the day, members, I can't help but being cynical, thinking that this is all about not the the fishers, it's all about votes, trying to grab votes in a cheap and nasty, divisive way. Now the Minister for the Environment has outlined the process. I have yet to receive the information that requires my concurrence or otherwise to take the process forward. When that process comes to me and moves on, there will be a four-month consultation period where I would expect everybody with an interest, conservationists, fishers, recreational fishers, community members who have an interest in their local community to have a good look and to decide what they think fits with their community and what doesn't. But I would draw the member back to his earlier comments and I certainly thank the member for enlightening me about the RSPCA because I do know that the members opposite are very quick to note the work of the Marine Stewardship Council, take the advice of the Marine Stewardship Council on Sustainability. Where's the Marine Stewardship Council based? The UK. So, so when, when you want to come in here, Member, and ask some sensible Order, questions, or take the offer for briefings in relation to sustainability of fisheries or whatever, when you want to talk seriously about fisheries, I'm more than open to have that conversation. But don't come in here on half-truths, hearsay, innuendo, all designed to simply grab a headline and cause angst in a community
1: that doesn't need to have angst. It will have its say. Fisheries Minister Don Pange in State Parliament yesterday. On the text, this from Anthony, who says, So Rhys Whitby supports Pew over Western Australian families. The marine park consultation process is corrupted and the public can have no confidence in it. We need a judicial inquiry. Into this fiasco according to Anthony. Uh text through your thoughts zero double four eight nine double two six. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Beale in the studio with the headlines. Thanks,
0: Belinda. The police pursuit of a 30-year-old man who allegedly attacked a woman in Perth's north with a machete has ended in a major crash. The woman suffered head and hand injuries in the alleged attack in Butler early yesterday. The suspect was later spotted in a Holden Commodore in Guildford. Police say during the pursuit, the car struck two other vehicles before crashing head-on into another car. The female driver of that vehicle ..and her baby suffered minor injuries. The driver of the Commodore, a 22-year-old Kalgoorlie woman... ..and the original suspect sustained broken bones. Police allege they found methamphetamine in the car. The state government has revealed the proposed location of a port... ..that would allow the relocation of commercial shipping... ..from Fremantle to Guanana The government says the environmental impact... ..of the proposed port in Coburn Sound has been investigated... ..and the chosen site would involve less dredging... ..and less impact on seagrass. And retiring Labor Senator... Patrick Dodson has used his final speech to Parliament to suggest Australia's young people will be the key to facilitating reconciliation. Senator Dodson announced his retirement yesterday saying he was physically unable to fulfil his parliamentary duties after a cancer diagnosis. He says Australia is a divided nation, but the next generation could find common ground. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock.
1: Jonathan, thank you for that update, 29 to 1. A few more texts coming through on what you've just heard from the... Um State Parliament yesterday in the debate around the marine parks and the opposition just asking questions about the consultation process and the influence of the Pew Charitable Trust, the environmental group. In response to that, Ron says, consulting the community, don't take the minister's comment, ask the people that were supposed to be consulted. I don't think so. Soon as you seeing a politician criticising someone personally, their argument is weak says Ron. And this too, Paul from Gardner says, what a joke. Our parliament and our ministers are sucking the blood from this country and selling us out. I worry for my kids' future. Thank you for that, Paul. 0448 922 604. Still to come. Today it is Wednesday, so it is off to Catanning for the results of the sheep market and a little bit of rain about in some parts of the state too. So we're going to head to up town and catch up with a farmer there who got a little bit of rain in the last 24 hours. And in a moment, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology.
9: G'day, this is Lightning, chipping away on stage two of the auto-irrigation scheme, and you're listening to the Country Hour.
1: 7 to 1 here on the Country Hour. It's time to make our way to the Bureau of Meteorology. Catherine Shelfout is with you this afternoon. Hello, Catherine. Take us for a look around the Southwest West Land Division.
10: Hi, Belinda. Look, it's uh, pretty cloudy and uh, reasonably cool over the southwest today. So what I can see on the satellite is a lot of thunderstorm activity um, sitting over far southeastern parts of the state, a little bit just in the Kimberley, uh, but just yeah, pretty cloudy along the west coast and around the southwest corner. So what we've got is a low sitting over the um, south interior and there's a branch, uh, a trough, a trough extending from that low back to around the southwest corner uh, and another trough uh, back to the Pilbara coast as well. So, and We've had a lot of moisture coming down, um, sort of from the tropic, tropics, which has uh, caused some uh, decent thunderstorms yesterday. I won't steal the thunder if you're going to read out, uh, out the rainfall figures, but there were a couple of good ones in the south uh, yesterday. But from tomorrow, we'll see that low that's in the interior move east, and both those uh, trough branches will weaken as we get a, a weak ridge moving in south of the state. So any of that thunderstorm activity will be uh, most likely well east of the southwest land division, and we'll just have a light. Um, sort of onshore flow, bringing a few showers to the south coast uh, west of about Bremer Bay. Uh, generally southeasterly winds through the south-east, uh, southwest land division, um, but a good uh, sea breeze up the west coast. Temperatures... Um, yeah, reasonably mild for November. So uh, the mid-20s in the south, getting up to around uh, 32 for Calabaran and Bruce Rock region and up into the mid-30s once we get into the central west. Um, on Friday, that'll be the hottest day for districts uh, near the west coast as we get a west coast trough forming again, but it's going to be a pretty short-lived one, nothing like what we saw um, over the about a week ago. Um So just a really weak high sitting in the bite and we'll have winds tending northeasterly but not very strong. So uh, that trough will move inland during the afternoon so we'll get a fresh sea breeze that pushes well inland uh, from the wind west coast. Um, No precipitation expected across the southwest land division on Friday and temperatures ranging from sort of 39 up at Karnamar um, into the mid low to mid 30s through the Great Southern, about 33 um, through inland parts of the southwest district. And then on Saturday and Sunday uh, that trough moves east very quickly with a new ridge pushing in. Uh, This uh, ridge will be a little bit further north than sort of typical for a summer pattern. Um, So that will allow um, some westerly flow in the south and we do actually have a very weak cold front that will cross the southwest corner um, either Saturday night or Sunday morning. Our two main uh, computer models are a bit uh, out of sync with the timing of the front but it's not a very significant one anyway. It will just bring um, some cloudy conditions over southwestern parts on Sunday and maybe some very isolated light showers uh, through the southwest district. So yeah, Saturday will be a very hot day through um, the central wheat belt and the Great Southern Temperatures sort of ranging from 37 up to 40 um, through places like Muck and Boudin, um and fresh and gusty northerly winds there. So yeah, a hottish day on Saturday, and then that cool change coming through um, Saturday afternoon, evening um, ahead of the front on Sunday.
1: And then Caroline, how conditions looking in northern and eastern parts this afternoon, and for the rest of the week?
10: So, yeah, just some storms uh, starting to fire up uh, in the eastern Kimberley and, as I mentioned, over far southeastern parts of the state. Um, yeah, northwesterly winds persisting through the Kimberley and looks like it'll stay like that for the next four days. So temperatures are a bit cooler than they have been. So Broome's only going for 33 today and that's uh, similar for the coming four days, whereas the eastern Kimberley still pretty hot, sitting around 39 degrees. And we will see the um, eastern and central Kimberley temperatures um, picking up up over forty degrees again the next few days. Um, thunderstorm activity will slowly contract. Um, so tomorrow, just sitting through sort of the northeast Kimberley and then gradually contracting uh, a little further northeast. So Kindarra and Windham still expecting storms the next few days, but uh, really nowhere else uh, in the Kimberley. And really, um, good afternoon, fresh afternoon sea breezes all along the Pilbara coast this week.
1: And then the warnings this afternoon.
10: Just uh, strong wind warnings for the Esperance and Eucla coasts.
1: Catherine, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thanks, Belinda. 22 to 1 here on the Country Hour and checking the rainfall figures now. So a look back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking five mils and over. Starting in northern and eastern forecast districts, a little bit about in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 16, Lansdowne 7, Marion Downs 7 and Warman 5. And in the Eucla, Air had twelve. Then moving into the Southwest Land Division, the Lower West, Bickley five, Jandicott Aero five, and Mandra had nine. Southern Coastal Region, Denbarkat nine, Hopeton North five, Jacob 23, Naralup seven, Pleasant Valley five, and Ravensthorpe seven. And then in the Great Southern there was a bit about Boscobel 14, Chamming up 60. Cherry Tree 7, Cranbrook 28, Franklin 21, Cojanup 36, Cookerin 21, Cullen 7, Lake Grace 17 and Wagen had 8. 21 to 1. Well, as you've just heard, some storms have caused more damage in the wheat belt. Yesterday that weather system brought with it a lot of lightning and hail. Hitting farms in the Kojanup region, about 250 kilometres southeast of Perth, Tony Fisher farms just east of the Kogenup town site and he watched the storm come through yesterday.
9: Yeah, I think majority of people in the shire would have seen it building up. It came um, came in from the sort of north and west, but sort of um, didn't really develop that much in the west. It went south and north, and then sort of came back on a lot of the shire. So we had quite uh, varying reports of, of rainfall, what like we've had in the southern parts of the shire and the Brook area. We've had up to 56 mil in some places, and neighbours had nothing. And then uh, we've gone back into the up town site, uh, where there's been varying reports, even within the town of, you know, 20 mils up to 30 five mils. Uh, right here, we only had uh, five and a half mils.
11: Really varied by the sound of it. Was it um, quite heavy rain, some hail, that sort of thing in with it?
9: I believe there was some people had hail uh, and, um, and, and quite a lot of people, the people that got heavy rain got very heavy rain. I have heard of reports of people losing a uh, significant amount of standing crop. In some areas, but um, yeah, our biggest concern was obviously all the lightning. We we can't tell you how much lightning, but there was it would have been in the hundreds of strikes.
11: You're the chief bushfire control officer. I imagine that made for a really busy afternoon trying to coordinate units to all those different fires that started.
9: Uh, yeah, we we had uh, we actually had six fires that we uh, that we know of that were attended to. Um, There were two in the Rhinesbrook area um, and they were on the, believe it or not, in the same, about 500 metres apart. Uh, And uh, so at first they weren't aware, the people weren't aware that were fighting those fires, that they had two fires going at the same time in that one paddock. Um, And then we've had other reports where we've had uh, people have jumped onto these fires very quickly, but we're obviously going to be monitoring for the next few days. Our next, our first real dangerous day is going to be Saturday, where we have possibly 34 degrees and winds that will be gusting up to 30 k's.
11: And what is the concern there? Is it that there will be sort of embers sitting somewhere, or, or what have you seen in the past with that, Tony?
9: Uh, well, what we found here and what we do find, and I think everyone does that have these lightning strike events, is what we have called sleepers. And they just, uh, the tree will be struck, it'll be up the fork of the tree up high. And when the right conditions come, of course, they're, they're dropping their embers down onto the ground. Uh, where we've had high rainfall, we haven't got a concern for a day or two, but. With the minimal rainfall everywhere else, uh, these things drop their, drop their embers and then once the wind picks up, uh, they, they head off away where they want to go. So we have to be alert people have to be constantly looking for smoke and and things that may um, pop up.
11: Yeah, you're really going to have to have your wits about you. You you, uh, just returned from a trip to town. You're back at the farm now. Uh, What's town looking like as a result of all of that rain? Is everything okay?
9: Uh, Yeah, the the town does look remarkably uh, well. You wouldn't know if you weren't uh, aware of it, Uh, but I do believe uh that the the rain came that strong and hard that it actually broke a gutter or two off on the uh entrance into the IGA which then flooded uh the IGA so uh on you know it just came in with it just like a flood. So oh. uh they've got that all tidied up now. Zulu too is uh Ross uh Price Smith who's uh deputy to me he's um He had 56 mil on his property. He had uh, explained to me that he had over six foot of water running down his river. And now this morning, after having all the dams full there, which is a bonus, uh, you wouldn't know that there's been a rain event. All the rain has just dispersed.
11: Wow. I imagine there's some damage to roads then as well.
9: Um, I'm not sure of structural damage to roads. I haven't heard of... uh, internal roads I've heard of a bit of damage um, but I haven't heard any any concerns of that area in that area and I haven't heard any concerns with any livestock so uh, that's a positive.
11: Mm, that is good, that is good you are shearing at the moment, I can hear some sheep in the background, are you going to be able to get cracking today?
9: Uh, yeah, no we had a shed full um, as I say, five and a half mils uh, that with the weather we've got now you it's quite uh, it's quite breezy and the sun is out uh these sheep will be dry will be able to continue
11: and some standing crop lost in that Kajina area how far through harvest would you say most of the region is
9: um i i i wouldn't like to say but there's a lot of harvest still to get underway there's um quite a few people haven't haven't even Uh, sort of got started because we've had some challenging times with wind events uh, a few days ago where people couldn't get going just we had fire bans very dangerous conditions and people have got going the um a lot of canola has probably come off but there's all the cereals there'll be a lot of cereals uh that won't have been touched as yet so there's um yeah, potentially uh, a lot of stuff that's out there that can burn and, of course, pasture is very valuable as well.
11: Yeah. We'll keep our <laughs> fingers crossed for you, Tony. Sounds like you've got some penning up to do, so I'll let you get cracking. Thanks for chatting today.
9: Yeah. No worries. Thanks, Jo.
1: Coaching Up Farmer Tony Fisher speaking to Joe Prendergast. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. Heaps of texts coming through. I can tell you right now I'm not going to get to all of them, but here's just a couple regarding the debate in State Parliament yesterday over the development of marine parks here in Western Australia and the opposition asking questions about the consultation process and the influence of the environmental group, the Pew charitable trust this from wendy in albany the fishermen in the esperance region both professional and recreational have all well and truly been involved and had their say into all the meetings on the proposed marine park that have been held in the region this is a total beat up by the nationals and liberals to gain votes heading into the next election thank you for that wendy the text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four i might be able to squeeze just a couple more in 14 to 1. Well, carbon and nature markets are expanding across the world and credit schemes are being floated as a way for agriculture to help tackle climate change. Food systems will be high on the agenda at this year's Global Climate Conference COP28, which begins this week in Dubai. And all this week... We've been looking at how agriculture is affected by and contributes to climate change. But farmers could also hold some of the solutions to the climate crisis. Fiona Broom has the details.
12: Trees, soil and nature are recognised as some of the best tools for bringing down global carbon levels. Carbon and nature markets have sprung up in recent years as ways of managing emissions and rewarding conservation. They're broadly known as nature-based solutions. Carbon markets are the most well-established. They offer companies ways to compensate for emissions by reducing or storing carbon elsewhere. Farmers manage half of all the land in Australia, so carbon markets are seen as a potential new revenue stream for agricultural businesses. But are they the best tool for cutting carbon?
2: We've got to be very careful when you put value on something like carbon that you don't just end up moving carbon around the landscape and the net result is the atmosphere doesn't benefit. And I think we're seeing too much of that happening already at the moment.
12: Richard Eckard is a professor of sustainable agriculture.
2: We've got to be careful about carbon markets because I think what's happened is the people that are meant to actually get the money are not getting the money as much as they should. You know, the, the brokers are actually achieving most of the gains out of the carbon markets. And in some cases, we're actually shifting deck chairs on the Titanic and not being serious.
12: Farmers want to help mitigate emissions, according to Farmers for Climate Action CEO Natalie Collard. She says producers are receptive to carbon schemes so long as they don't operate in opposition to efforts to tackle climate change.
1: I think like anything new, there's a lot of information that's required. Anything that's developed in terms of new markets, time plays a part in understanding whether they achieve the outcomes that they're um, setting out to do. What we hear from our 8,000-plus farmer members consistently is that They're really first and foremost focused on deep emissions reductions. First and foremost, they want a stable climate so that they can produce a stable food supply and do it profitably and productively. Second to that is that any offset markets are genuinely also supporting that objective and not a perverse outcome.
12: National Farmers' Federation President David Johinki says schemes need proper oversight to deliver benefits.
1: What
0: we've seen in some circumstances is blocks of land being purchased for offsetting of carbon, being locked up and not being managed at all. We have weeds, we have pests that now live in those landscapes and actually putting pressure on food production outside of their system, let alone not maximising that natural environment that they're claiming as credits.
12: Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance President Tammy Jonas says using agricultural lands to store carbon won't stop emissions from other industries. In the case of carbon markets in particular, you can't have it both ways where um, you pay farmers to sequester carbon, which is a worthy undertaking, and then let them sell those credits to the others who continue emitting at the same levels. It's giving the miners, uh, the extractive industries, a, a get out of jail free card while the planet burns and they don't reduce emissions. So the food sovereignty movement and indigenous movements the world over are strongly opposed to nature markets or any market-based solution for sequestering carbon. We could do like Europe does and subsidise farmers rather than fossil fuel companies. There's a novel idea. Professor Richard Eckard says systems that reward land stewards who are already storing carbon and boosting biodiversity could deliver real benefits.
2: Nature repair markets, I think, are more optimistic for the long-term future. Currently, if you've got low soil carbon, we pay you to become high soil carbon. The, the people that have high soil carbon, we don't reward. Whereas in biodiversity markets, we'd be actually saying, if you've already got high biodiversity, we will recognize and reward that. So I I think there's a difference between rewarding poor performers to become better, which we shouldn't be paying for, as opposed to rewarding farmers that have already done the right thing. The extreme example of that is if you've got high soil carbon, like most good well-managed grazing systems would have maxed out on soil carbon already. The incentive is to put in a rotary hoe, plough it up, burn off all the carbon you've got so that you've got low carbon and then engage in a carbon scheme to rebuild it. Um, instead of saying, well, if you've got 5% soil carbon, let's celebrate that and say you've got a wonderful outcome. We, we don't do that. and That's where nature repair markets might be better.
1: University of Melbourne Professor of Sustainable Agriculture Richard Eckhart ending that report from Fiona Broome. Nine to one. Well, WA Goat Producers say a report from Meat and Livestock Australia on goat exports significantly increasing to China is not something to celebrate. Just to recap from yesterday, MLA's Tim Jackson went through the latest data which shows China has moved from taking 1% of Australia's goat meat to now be one of the biggest customers, taking 20% of exports. But pastoralists like Simon Thomas from Marin Station, south of Carnarvon, say those numbers don't reflect how difficult it is on the ground running a goat enterprise at the moment.
13: It is true that China have increased their portion of the market with the Australian goat meat, but that is primarily has come about because of the, um, the goat prices of all. Prices for meat has plummeted as Australia used to send most of the um, the product was sent to the USA and that market there has um, been significantly impacted with the extra meat being put into their market from the likes of Brazil and a few others who have sort of come on board sort of post COVID and that's created you know a flood in the market so China are only picking up on the fact that you know the Australian meat prices have, have dropped so significantly that now they're actually buying part of that, that market. So the MLA were painting a picture that the, the goat industry in Australia is actually uh, strengthening. But what he's failed to actually show or explain is that the prices have dropped so much and in fact are unviable with so many uh, processes not being able to move the product that uh, it's becoming very much a restricted market for the growers to even be able to, um, you know, sell sell any of their product at all.
11: So you feel that that wasn't reflected, that some of the difficulty that the industry really is facing at the moment?
13: I actually felt that uh, his comments were nothing short of disturbing and totally unrealistic. And um, But isn't you know, it with- a good
11: thing that China are in and buying? Because if there's no demand from the US, you would listen to that and think, well, the price would be even worse if China weren't in there buying.
13: Absolutely. And, you know, thankfully, with China buying, you know, the goat meat as they are at the moment, at least that does give growers a marketing option, uh, whereas, you know, without them, it wouldn't be there. Mm. But it's, it doesn't doesn't uh, mean that the goat market is, is actually viable. And a lot of growers are selling uh, animals, um, you know, below cost or, or at cost, um, just just simply to manage their their flock numbers and and not actually showing any returns to the growers themselves.
11: You're just south of Carnarvon on that coastal strip. You've got sheep and goats. Are you turning off goats at the moment?
13: Nowhere near as many as we'd like to, um, and and in fact I've actually just just cancelled the road train of goats that we were supposed to uh, be sending on the eighth of December. So with 1,100 animals that were due to go, um, I've actually been forced to hold them for a bit longer um, whilst looking for a, a better market because on a road train of goats 18 months ago was worth 130 to $150,000 uh, depending on the weights of the individual animals. Um, currently at the moment for those same numbers we're looking at a return of about 24000 So by the time you're taking your freight, your feeding costs and and mastering, there's just no money in it.
11: It doesn't cover your costs?
13: No, it runs at a loss, yeah.
11: So what are you going to do with those 1,100 goats that would have been on the truck down south?
13: We're looking at another option at the moment, um, which at least pays its way. Um, That is most likely to come off, but uh, that's meant we've got to keep those animals uh, for, for another three weeks. But um, just the fact that we haven't been able to sell the numbers that we'd like to, um, we've actually had to uh, you know, establish other waters and do other developments just to try and spread our grazing pressure.
11: Mm, because it's dry there at the moment as well, which I imagine just adds to the, the stress.
13: Oh, it does. Yeah, well, we've actually had 60 mils of rain since January of this year. So um, yeah, the country is feeling in need of a good drink, um, but we're no orphan there either. There's plenty of others that the in exactly the same boat as what we are.
11: Mm. What's the the future look like, do you think? I mean, you're getting prices at the moment where it's, it's just not worth sending them off the property. Do you see that turning around?
13: Unfortunately, I don't see it turning around any time soon. I mean, the MLA are currently doing a campaign at the moment for sheep and, and cattle as a, as a pre-Christmas campaign. Um, sadly, they haven't included goats in that campaign, and I think considering we have a multicultural population, it's a real, real oversight on, on their behalf, you know, the partial industry is hurting, um, as well as growth is as well, because, you know, livestock prices across the board that growers are getting is nothing like what people are seeing on the supermarket shelves, and that is something else that needs to be addressed.
11: Mm. When you think about the levy that you pay for the goat that you do sell versus the investment in marketing and in development of the West Australian industry specifically. Do you think that that lines up?
13: No, I don't think it does. Um, and I think that the, you know MLA are very very much been asleep at the wheel um, as far as addressing the issues that we're experiencing now. What they seem to be focused on at the moment is predominantly is the management um, and the development of the industry, um, which is all well and good, but that we need to look past that, um, get out the market gate, and and seeing how you know the best ways of actually moving the product once it's once it's been grown.
1: Simon Thomas, he's from Marin Station, and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. This is the Country Hour. It's two minutes to one o'clock, and it's time to head to the markets and 5,782 sheep and lambs were pinned for sale at the Katanning market today. That is down 110 from last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, how was the yarding today?
7: The yarding was dominated by mutton, with the heavy ewes selling to $44 and weathers to $46. Processors showed a greater demand for prime li- lambs, lifting prices by $10 a head. But while the prime lines gained with demand, plain lines once again received no interest from buyers selling to minimal values. Lightweight lamb under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $69. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $66 to $94. Trade weights returned $82 to $117. And heavy weights sold up to $122 a head. Store use made from $2 to $23 and up to $26 to restockers. The medium weight ewes sold to $35 carrying a fleece, and heavy weight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight sold at $44 a head. The heavy weathers made from $35 to $46. Ram lambs sold from $53 to $110, and mature rams realised $5 up to $35 for the younger aged pens. This has been Tracy Keelner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service.
1: Tracy, thank you for that. And just a couple of texts on the storms recently. Um, this one from Paul in Manjumup. We live and farm 15 kilometres east of Manjumup and got 100 millimetres in just over an hour late yesterday in the thunderstorm. That is a lot. And this too, this is the paddocks and roads three days after the storm at Balladew. The crop was standing unharvested, one tonne approximately, and thank you for the photo. It is completely flattened. I'm sorry to see that. One o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.